This is the first episode of Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. And today I'm joined by Maura de Klerk Mindriller, a Belgian mergers and acquisitions lawyer turned entrepreneur. She is CEO of the deep tech company ID Legacy. And today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, the current state of its development, its potential, and the changes it is causing in the fabric of our society. Welcome, Maura. Thank you, Ina, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with the basics for those who are not uh, that tech savvy. Um, what is artificial intelligence and how exactly does it work? Well, <laughs> AI actually right now plays a key role in our society, I would say. But it's not really new. It has been around since the 50s, and not many people know that. And one could say that Alan Turing was conceptually already working on artificial intelligence. And way before him in the 17th century, uh, Leibniz was doing the same. But I'm digressing a bit. So when we talk about artificial intelligence, we are actually referring to intelligence displayed by machines. Now, essentially, AI or artificial intelligence applies pattern recognition algorithms to large data sets or data lakes so it can learn and improve from this data. Now, what truly makes AI AI is the fact that it does not really need a human being or engineer anymore to program an algorithm which then tells the machine how to think and how to learn. Now algorithms can be generated automatically with with this analysis of the big data. So there are basically three essential methods within AI. So the first one would be, you know, heuristics, human-made algorithms. The second one uh, would be what we know under machine learning. So it's uh, machine learning applying statistics on these large data lakes. So you have partially human intervention, partially the machine learns. And then you have the the real AI or the deep learning using artificial neural networks as uh, key components. Now, I also want to add to that that AI can, and it also will be applied in the future even more, almost in every industry and every aspect of society. It will it will touch our lives really in in every aspect. And for me. The essential power of AI is actually the the highly advanced automation and optimization that it offers for us as, as human beings. Now, for better or for worse, AI is really a turning point, I would say, in human uh, civilization. And at the same time, nowadays, I feel it's such a buzzword, you know, because if you look into the future, the next frontier for AI will be general artificial intelligence or AGI. And what is that? That is a type of AI that can solve complex problems like, for example, hunger in the world. You know, it's, it needs almost human-like cognitive or reasoning capacities to be able to, to connect all the dots. Because the AIs that we have nowadays are the ones that I talked about earlier. They are extremely good, even better than humans at performing one single task, for example, playing Go or playing chess or automating one aspect, but they can't really understand the world as as we humans do. The experts say that AGI will maybe be here in 20 to 40 years time. So we will still probably see it in this lifetime. But, you know, a hurdle, a big hurdle of AGI is what I just mentioned. 
you, how do you program common sense in a machine or how do you have the machine learn common sense or this, this thing that we have as humans? I think now the discussion could get even more philosophical because uh, it becomes a question of consciousness. And if an AGI will be conscious, then I guess it will become sentient and then we won't have AGI, but we will have sentient AI. Uh, and how are we going to deal with this is the question. So since, since we don't really have a scientific explanation of what consci consciousness really is right now, and we don't fully understand how the human brain works, I don't think uh, sentient AI will be something we will experience in this lifetime. But yeah, let's keep it, let's keep it to this. I hope I provided uh, some clarity on, on what AI is. Uh, I just wanted to uh, clarify to what extent is it used now, um, in which industries and how actually? Yeah, so right now, like I said, we have this highly specialized artificial intelligence. So it is used in almost everything from search engines to, you know, earlier I, I wanted to, to remember how you say a word and translate it from Dutch to English. And I arrived on the website telling me that it was using deep learning for the translation. So it is used very much in, in language as well. So the AI for that is a GPT-3 right now. So it's used in translations, like I said, but also in, in writing text. You know, chatbots often are, are run uh, on AI. Siri, Alexa, that we all know are AIs. But also think of like more... Practical things like uh, autonomous cars and self-driving cars powered by AI. I see AI used a lot and more and more also in the healthcare sector where you, I mean, you already have this, this AI systems that, that scan brain scans, for example, to try to detect patterns in a very accurate way, in a way maybe that radiologists cannot today, but also, you know, Artificial intelligence in education, but there's a lot more ed tech now and it's booming. It's in the insurance world, in finance, cybersecurity, gaming. It can even generate art. You know, dating platforms run on AI nowadays. My favorite networking organization runs on AI. It's called Lunch Club. So it's everywhere uh, and we don't always realize this. That's really interesting. And so, as you described now, it's quite widespread, but the technology is not that uh, developed yet. But we still have to look forward to a new stage and think about uh, ethical and legal challenges it uh, might present. So, what are the challenges we are facing now and what's in store for us in the future? Mm -hmm. Good question. <laughs> oh, if we had a, a perfect answer to that, that would be great. But I'm going to start my answer maybe a bit more macro and go micro from there and go very specific, but um, just to contextualize a bit, we live in a digital bureaucracy nowadays, you know, where algorithms get to decide more and more what will happen to us as individuals in society. Now, of course, this has a profound impact on our identity and, you know, on not only the identity in the material world, but also in the digital world with the metaverse uh, coming up. But maybe we can talk about that later. Of course, this raises many questions. Now, this being said, it's also important to recognize that AI is amoral. It is today merely a technological tool, in my opinion. And 
It is used a bit too much, if you ask me, by big uh, corporations and governments to monitor the activities of individuals. That AI is not good or bad, it can easily be used to empower individuals to, in this way, re-establish more balance in society. This is what I truly um, believe in. There are several scenarios possible when it comes to artificial intelligence, especially artificial intelligence in the future. There's this fantastic book I want to recommend by a physicist, Max Techmark, and he wrote in his book Life 3.0 about 12 possible scenarios where we would have general artificial intelligence. And the scenarios range from having an AI that would be, uh, I don't know, like a benevolent god to an AI that just sees us as a zoo and will be a zookeeper for us and will just keep some specimens alive to a malevolent dictator. So I think when it comes to regulation, especially into the future, there are possible scenarios to, to keep in mind. But to answer the question now a bit more specifically, imagine an exponential acceleration of what, what we already have today in combination with other powerful technologies like sensors, quantum computers, cybersecurity. And when we think of an evil AI genius, for example, making all the decisions for us, then we can imagine, of course, a, a multitude of yeah, almost dystopian science fiction scenarios. So how do you go by regulating this? AI is already as we said, massively impacting our society. Companies and governments are investing uh, massively in, in AI because it is a cornerstone technology that drives all other tech and innovation forward right now. And this AI dominance gives a, a massive uh, competitive edge uh, in the future to those who, who will own it. So this is also a, a question I want to um, pose before we go into the regulation, the one who will own it will, will be the most powerful one. The one who owns the most powerful AI, I mean, will be powerful in society. So there are many ethical and legal challenges that we, that we don't really have clarity on, to be honest, because the field is developing very, very fast and legislators have difficulty keeping up. That's the reality of it. There's, of course, also the very trouble. Many challenges of the future are completely unknown to us because we as humans have this tendency to think in a very linear way, but changes in society are seldom linear. It, there are always disruptions and, and exponential changes, whether it's for the good or the bad. So the truth is we can't really predict it. Now, for example, think of, of social media 20 years ago. It's an example that comes to mind. When Facebook came out, it was super exciting. It was all rainbows and unicorns and you could keep in touch with everyone. And it was a very social, social medium. And if you think about Meta today and all the technological issues and ethical issues right now, I think it's safe to assume that AI will be used for both good and evil in the future. So keeping that, this in mind, let me just very specifically tell you what the issues are. So. There are legal issues with AI. I'll, I'll tell you in a sec more about that. There are black box issues with AI. Since the, the algorithm writes itself, we, we don't really know how it makes a decision right now. We, we don't know how it, why it does what it does. So that's the typical black box problem within AI. 
then there are all these biases that AI has, you know, it's, it's also a huge issue that we need to think and regulate around privacy issues. You know, there's a whole range of jobs that's going to become useless. So that's like maybe a fifth problem I can think of. And then of course it will lead to inequality in society and maybe warfare. And AI has also a major role in that. So I'll go into this category for the legal issues that I see. You could raise questions like, should AI become uh, a legal entity and have legal personality? For example, as we have companies, they have a legal personality. There's the issue of liability. Who is responsible for an algorithmical mistake that is completely black box? Um, should someone be responsible? Of course, the many privacy issues and then this whole tension between the need to regulate and the need for privacy on the one hand, and on the other hand, the need to also enable innovation and a thriving, booming economy. So this is also something we will have to deal with. And the last thing I want to say about legal challenges um, or regulations is maybe in terms of, this is something I'm actually really myself reflecting on a lot lately. In terms of human intelligence, I think there are many regulations about what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, the body, the physical integrity. But if you think about it, the regulations around human intelligence are very limited right now. And I think since we don't exactly know what intelligence, consciousness is scientifically, in my opinion, there lies the true key to maybe achieving an interesting legislation that, that would be really understanding and in line with what is happening in society and with AI. This, that's all I had for the legal or all I want to say for now. But now there's, of course, this big black box issue. It's actually... Good and bad, the fact that, that AI is black box. Not all AI is black box, by the way. It is revolutionary that machines now can make these decisions for us. It's another level of outsourcing that we have achieved as humanity. And it is a quintessential brain function of technology, I want to say. So, you know, it has a beauty to it, but we have no idea, like I said, how the decisions are made. So when humans intervened before in writing the code, it was very clear because we knew exactly, we told the machine what to do, what to think, how to learn, and then we knew what the output would be. But now the output is unsure. It leads to the typical trolley problem with autonomous vehicles, for example. You know, would it make sense to, if it would be white box AI, so if we would program it ourselves, it would maybe make sense to program an autonomous vehicle to drive in a very careful way, for example. However, if you think about the interaction of the AI with humans, maybe the other drivers, because at first you'll have like this hybrid model where you have human drivers and autonomous uh, cars. So maybe in the interaction with human drivers, the human drivers might get too relaxed and might lose their reflexes because they would think, oh, okay, all of these self-driving cars are programmed, they are safe, so I, I will not be vigilant anymore. And this can lead to dramatic problems as well. And also there was this scandal with Amazon, you know, using AI bots for hiring people. And it had a lot of biases also for the decisions who, who will be laid off in a company. If an AI decides and you don't know why, I think it's really uh, a big problem in society and a big challenge to legislate that. The next thing was biases. AI, especially machine learning, it just works on the information that, that we feed it, that humans or data scientists feed it. So if you feed the system with bias, then AI will be, behave accordingly. 
And because of privacy issues, it's very difficult to, to, to find high quality data sets to feed the, the machine. So what I see now um, more and more is the synthetical data sets being generated. And so you have to know that right now, if I want to use a data set, this data for privacy reasons and because of regulations, they need to really anonymize some key factors like names of people, addresses, things like that. But the more you anonymize, the less data the machine has to learn and the less correlations it can learn. So this is why there are always biases. The quality of, of what it learns is not always great. But if you can work with fully synthetically generated data sets, you won't have all of these issues. So that might be a solution. And then, of course, the privacy. Uh, there was a debate on facial recognition and technology around that. Some countries even wanted to ban it. But I don't think it's very realistic. Like I said, when you talk about privacy, it's very important that we do respect the privacy, but that we do not completely take innovation hostage, I want to say. Because if these companies can't evolve and innovate, I don't think that will benefit society either. So when you talk about privacy, of course, it, you can talk about the issue of facial recognition, but also the tracking of data, data leaks, and again, it's it's a very delicate line to regulate. Um, I'm not going to go into everything I said, but maybe just like a last point about jobs that will be rendered uh, useless because of AI. Now, in this uh, book, Homo Deus by Noah Yuval Harari, he described a powerless or useless class of people that will that will rise in the future because uh, of this AI technology. And, you know, at least in the industrial revolution, he claims people could unite in unions and exert power because their labor was required. But in a dystopian scenario where the rich own the IP and the companies uh, and the middle class has become uh, powerless, what will happen? So I'll leave you with that. I hope it, I, I answer your question more or less, but I think yeah, if I would have an answer, I would not be sitting here. <laughs> so it's a delicate uh, balance, I think. Uh, exactly. It's a complex uh, issue and uh, we do need to think about it now. In your opinion, if we could speculate about possible legal mechanisms that could be introduced today, should it be international bodies? Should it be decided on uh, national levels? What, what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. I certainly think that politics and legislative bodies play a huge role in this, and they should, uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, I am also a very big proponent of decentralized everything, whether it is decentralized data, decentralized infrastructure, or decentralized decision-making. I think history has shown that not all always wise to put all the power in one central organization. So we have to be careful with that. This being said, I do think there is a need for more of a homogenous legislation worldwide, but this can also be achieved very easily in a decentral way with uh, autonomous independent decision makers coming together and signing a treaty or maybe ethical documents. This would be my ideal scenario, but there are many possibilities. Now I would like to talk about the metaverse you've mentioned uh, already. What's your take on that and uh, where is it going? Okay, Facebook 
sales books approach, you know, it will probably not survive in the next years, if you ask me, because Facebook, there are several factors that contribute to what I said. First of all, Facebook is not a gaming company. If you look at the metaverse, it is highly dominated right now by big gaming companies. So the issues with Facebook or meta, as, as we should now call it, is that there are clearly trust and, and privacy issues with the company and, and that heavily has impacted them. Now, not only this, but there is a lot of controversy um, around them because of the harm that, you know, exposure to Facebook, for example, has caused teenagers. He had a lot of bad press globally because of this. Also, I don't really see Facebook as an innovator. I see Facebook um, or Meta more as an acquirer. They acquired Instagram, WhatsApp, which was actually smart because Insta and WhatsApp are now growing entities within the, the Meta or the Facebook portfolio. They've acquired Oculus, the headset for the for VR. But if you see at Oculus, it has lost $3.3 billion uh, recently. So they took a hit there and they are taking many hits right now. There was a massive, massive drop of 25% in their their stock, which has lost them, I think about $230 billion or something. So they are under a lot of pressure from investors in the metaverse who obviously expect returns on their investment. And returns can be made. There are many opportunities within the metaverse, for example, you know, real estate to sell within the metaverse are booming. There are many things Facebook could jump on and, and try to, to produce these returns. But if you look at it, as a whole, I think, because I read uh, an article about it, the value, the total value of Meta as a company has decreased by 35% since last year. So yes, they did come out with this whole uh, marketing campaign around the metaverse and how they were going to be the leaders in building it. And their campaign has actually really contributed to, to buzz around, to more buzz around the metaverse. But if you look at what they are doing right now, I think they really need to shift or switch uh, their approach a bit. Now, this being said, they do have assets as well. And so don't underestimate Zuckerberg. I think he is a strategist in the end. If you think about his, his mobile strategy, I think it was around 2009, 2010, it really paid off. And also, you know, his initial investment in Oculus was actually a really good idea in the hardware because Oculus is doing great, even if, if it has lost uh, the money now. But in the end, it has sold about 10 million units. And then I think Facebook had 10 billion invested in the metaverse. So they do have the resources to make it happen. The only issue is that their resources do not always translate in innovation. And maybe if they would be a bit more innovative and, and let's focus on strategic acquirements, I think they stand a chance, but they really need to change uh, the way they are doing things right now, in my opinion. All right. Talking about other IT giants, Amazon, Google, uh, you name it, all of them are American companies. I have a question for you as an EU uh, citizen. Are there any concerns about that in Europe? And uh, what is the rhetoric about it? Is it seen as a problem or not? Good question too. I think Europe has many strengths and opportunities. There's a lot of amazing talent here. The level of education in Europe is really high. But there's for me one supreme bottleneck, I want to say, in Europe, which is really 
the risk averseness. It's like almost a collective mindset that we have here in, in European society. And you can find it in this risk averseness. You can find it in lots of companies, institutions, in the way we regulate here in Europe, but also in the decision making on all levels. And I think it's, it's understandable on the one hand, because Europe is a such a complex market with many countries, many languages. This makes innovation and entrepreneurship maybe more challenging than in, I don't know, in a young market where, where there's one policy and a lot of freedom and where, where risk taking is seen as something more beneficial or valuable. So that's one point. A second point is that Smart and sustainable innovation is, in my eyes, really essential globally, but especially for, for Europe and its citizens, if we want to have this wealthy and healthy society that we hold high in our culture. I'm convinced that this will offer opportunities for everyone if you stimulate, as, as a European legislator, this innovation. I think it can contribute to a, a massively sustainable and more modern economy in Europe. It's crucial to keep in mind that regulation can protect, but it can also constrain this innovation. And I think this is what's happening now in, in Europe. And this is why all the big tech giants are maybe not European. I mean, I, I don't really agree with that statement, by the way, because we do have a lot of, of big tech and a lot of unicorns and, and very innovative companies in Europe as well. But I, I do understand what you mean. Currently, a, a lot of resources are being thrown at innovation green and digital, which is amazing. But I do think that, yes, resources are important, but lowering the barriers to start and to operate businesses and to stimulate this entrepreneurship in Europe is even more important. Because like I said, there is so much talent in Europe and it is a very attractive place for people to live. If, if the legislators in Europe would make it more easy to start a business, decrease or automate bureaucracy in a righteous and ethical way, digital, digitize governments, improve fiscal systems, make it easier to hire uh, and fire people. I think Europe might benefit as an ecosystem a lot from that. Now, on the upside, I do believe that things are also really uh, taking off in a lot of European hubs here, like London, for example, Stockholm, Berlin, Paris, in, in uh, Zurich and Luxembourg. There's a lot of innovation happening right now. And I do think we see a positive trend and a positive evolution with everything I've just said. And Estonia is, I think, leading in Europe for yeah everything that has to do with digital government. But so the big question is, it again, it has to be a, a righteous digital government. The solution would be um, economic uh, incentives and maybe incentives on the level of education. Because, yeah, first of all, it's education, it's research, and then innovation. There are already a ton of, of good initiatives in Europe. I wasn't by no means saying that that is not the case. My point in one sentence is actually... If we would be less conservative here in Europe and, and less risk averse in the way we legislate, we could have a lot more innovation and we could empower companies here to not have to move abroad because of legislative reasons, but to really stay here. We have a lot of talent and they can stay and build these huge tech giants here as well. I guess that's uh, the main point. 
All right. So let's uh, hope this will happen soon. <laughs> and my last question uh, for you is uh, the one I ask uh, all my guests. The name of my podcast is Being Modern, Being Human. So what uh, does it mean for you, being modern and being human? Yeah, this, uh, I think it's a very difficult question to answer. And you will get probably a very different answer from from all your guests. Recently, someone on a, on a podcast I did last week asked me, what would be your greatest tip for success? And I, I understood the question, success as a human being. And I said, be fearless in the pursuit of what sets your soul on fire, or even be fierce in the pursuit. And I think it has to do with your question as well, what it means to be human. It means to be connected to yourself, to understand for yourself what you, you want to do in this life and who you are as a human being. I'm not talking about the ego and about how you should be or how, what others say you should think. I'm talking about feeling this connection to who you truly are. I think this will become more and more important, especially in this day and age with, with AI and, and technology. Uh, coming at us from all angles. So this connection, not only with yourself, but also with others, the deep the understanding of what makes us human and the way we interact with each other, but also a third thing, the way we connect and interact with our environment. I think if we can reflect deeply on these three aspects, and if every individual would do that for themselves, we would maybe have more, uh, a more balanced environment and more fulfilling relationships, whether it's with ourselves or with, uh, with others around us. For me, being human in this modern day and age also means to be, to be aware and to be responsible. I think one of the biggest challenges that we face as humanity will be to distinguish what is real from what is not real. And this is a whole philosophical debate, of course, that I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to go into that, but we already are so nudged. I mean, even if you look at your, your own social media feeds, you probably have certain narratives that you see coming back and you are being put in a tunnel. You don't know what is happening outside of the tunnel. And I think this leads to a lot of polarization because my social media feed is not your social media feed. So what for me is the truth or evident will not be that for you. And I think when I say awareness, it's really important to be aware of this fact. Like even if you, you play the game, you are watching the feed, but you're still the one who decides what you get to see and what not. So I'm, for example, someone who will follow a person that I absolutely do not agree with just to understand their perspective, because I think it's very dangerous to slide into this one-sidedness and it creates more uh, polarization in society. And this is something that is very dangerous. So that awareness is also very important, but also perpetual growth as a human being. You have to adapt, you have to learn all the time. I think this is this is an ability that we have that many sometimes stop using. And I think that's even dangerous now because society is ever evolving. Everything is now exponentially moving forward. And I, I fear that if you do not try to jump on the wagon, you will be left behind. And I don't, I wouldn't want to see a society with two gears, you know, on the one hand, people who are empowered, who are 
tech savvy and, and then people who completely fell off the wagon and who, who are being used by this whole tech machine. So I think the, the things I mentioned are, are really, really essential. Transcend the ego, transcend the mind and try to have a, a deep understanding of whatever it is that comes at us technologically right now. Try to gain as much information and educate yourself as best as you can. I think this is a need for humanity right now. Thank you, Mara. That's uh, a great point. Uh, thank you for this conversation. And uh, let's remain human, conscious and responsible. Thank you, Ina. It was a pleasure being here.